Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. If you are finding us for the very first time, welcome to a very special episode. This is our 100th episode of the Story Night Podcast, which is so exciting and really so unexpected because three years ago when this began, it was the the very beginning of the pandemic, the shutdown. We introduced the concept of the Story Night podcast on episode one. It grew out of a live event ministry, and we thought, well, let's just record, I don't know, maybe five or 10 episodes so that ladies will have something to listen to while they're stuck inside and never could have imagined how many years we would be continuing to record women's stories and how many countries this podcast would find its way into. And here we are three years later. So we are publishing this episode episode on April 19th, 2023, exactly three years to the day from when we released the very, very first Story Night podcast episode. So whether you have been with us the whole three years or this is your first time, welcome. We're so glad you're here. This is a place where real women share real stories of real hope. And I wanted to figure out something special for the 100th episode. And you know, God's pretty amazing. He usually has a plan already. <laughs> <laughs> and he connected me with an incredibly special woman named Ashley just in the last couple of weeks. And she just so happens to be kind of a story night queen in her own right. And we're going to let her explain what she does and how she got there and all of that. So Ashley, welcome. Thank you so much for being here for our 100th episode. We are so excited to have you here. I do need to give a little bit of a warning because parts of Ashley's story are mature topics. So if you're listening to this and you have some younger ears nearby, you may want to wait until later to listen to the story in its entirety. But even though the topics are mature and hard to hear, this is a story well worth listening to because it's a story of hope. So Ashley, thank you so much for being here, for being willing to share your story. Thank you for all that you're doing within your ministry. And before we dive into your story, would you introduce yourself to the listeners and just tell them a little bit about what you do? We'll, we'll get into the details of it towards the end of the episode, though. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Jessica. It's an honor to be a part of it and to be on here for the 100th episode. It's quite an accomplishment and awesome. So thank you. I appreciate it. Like you said, my name is Ashley, and I'm a mom. I'm a wife. Uh, my husband and I own our own business, and I also, like you said, I have an organization called Stories Unveiled, and we also uh, are in the business of sharing stories, really, and not just stories, but stories of what God has done in women's lives. We firmly believe that everybody has a story, that everybody's story matters, and that it's so important. And God gave us our story and was writing it. We just feel like it's so important to share what God has done in our life and how Jesus just weaves our stories together to just make something so beautiful. So that's kind of in a nutshell. <laughs> and obviously, I love everything you're doing. 
<laughs> when when we first got connected, it was through another story night lady who I met through another story night lady, and you know the, the, it goes on and on and on. It's just like this big family tree of story right. night, of story night speakers. But when I was on the phone with with another lady, she said, "Oh, have you heard of Stories Unveiled? We will hear so much more about what you have done with Stories Unveiled and how the story night." podcast listeners can connect with Stories Unveiled and hear those stories yeah. as well. Um, so we'll get there. Hang tight, listeners. But we're going to start at the beginning. We're going to start with Ashley's childhood. And I'm going to hand it over to you to tell us your story. Thanks. Yeah. So I was born and raised in Southern California. Lived there for about 16 years, 15 or 16 years. I was raised in the church. My mom was married. I have a little brother. He's about nine years younger than me. I don't have a ton of memories from when I was a young child. I don't know if that's, what's the word, like like a coping mechanism. I don't know. I don't have very many memories from when I was a kid, to be honest. I do have a lot of memories of going to church, though. It was like the highlight of my childhood. It was always only me, my mom, and my brother, though. My mom's husband didn't go ever. I remember that I spent a lot of time alone. As a kid, my mom worked nights. Her husband would be home. My brother was so little that we never really interacted much. I just remember being really lonely through most of my childhood. When I was 14, though, my parents got divorced. I say parents. He wasn't really my father, and I didn't find that out until I was 16. thought for 16 years that he was my dad, and after they divorced and she got out from underneath his control, I guess you could say, he threatened her and said that he never wanted me and my brother to know the truth. He never wanted us to know how we were conceived and how we came to be. And so there was this lie that was told to both me and my brother. But because he was so much younger, I was about 16, but he was like seven or eight. We both found out at the same time that he was not actually our dad. Uh, my mom had been artificially inseminated with both of us two different donors. So technically my brother and I have two different fathers, two different donors. And then we will never know who they are thanks to DNA and, you know, the ancestry and 23andMe and all of those. I actually think I have found my biological father, but I will never reach out because God's blessed me with a dad. My mom remarried and kind of a little later in the story, but I don't need to know who he is. But kind of funny that what, what once was supposed to be anonymous is not so anonymous anymore. <laughs> but yeah, so when I was 16, I found that out. I was really relieved because we had a terrible relationship. He was not a good man. He was accused of all sorts of stuff. I remember when I was in third grade, I went to a private Christian school. I was pulled into the principal's office and there was a police officer and there was what, who I later came to find out was a woman from Child Protective Services. I was questioned all afternoon in the principal's office about my mom's husband. If he had ever done anything to me, kind of all of these things. And I don't really remember much of the outcome. I just know that nothing happened after that. But he had been accused of so many things. It just, my childhood is kind of a blur in that sense. But I just know that we didn't get along and I did not like him. And so as soon as they divorced, I requested to live with my mom and I never saw him again. After I found out that this man was not my father, my mom ultimately did go on to remarry. 
and she married an incredible Christian man that ultimately went on to adopt me after I became an adult. Why we waited that long, I don't know, <laughs> but um, he did. We, it's funny, we went to court and the judge actually said, you know, the custody things and the, the hearings that I have in these rooms are not usually happy. They're usually, you know, they're just usually sad. They're not so much bringing families together as it is bringing, you know, tearing families apart usually in the courtroom. I was 21, I think. And so it was, you know, me, this adult, a young adult and my dad and we're in there and the judge tosses me this huge pink teddy bear and was like, you know, congratulations on being adopted and like having a father. And I was 21, but it was kind of amazing that I mean, I have a dad now and we have a great relationship and my mom and dad are still married. And so, yeah, that was really my childhood. Most of my story, I guess you could say the junk part of my story that really has made me who I am, though, and, and you know, why I'm doing what I'm doing now didn't really happen until I uh, became an adult. When I started going to college, I stopped going to church, not for any reason other than it just wasn't a priority for me anymore. My senior year of high school, my parents moved churches. I didn't like the church that they went to. I had a hard time making friends and fit, fitting in, which I'm pretty outgoing. That was never really like an issue for me. And so I just really struggled. And I told my parents that I didn't want to go to, their, to that church anymore. And my dad said, kind of like too bad, <laughs> as long as you live here, you'll go to church because they didn't want me to stop going to church. They wanted it to be important to me. But because of that, as soon as I moved out and went to college, I stopped going to church. I didn't want to take the time to find somewhere to fit in. It was way more fun to party and meet boys and do all of the college stuff. And so I ended up working weekends and I just drifted further and further from the Lord. Never had a crisis of faith, never got to a point where I would have denounced my faith or said I didn't believe. I just was simply not walking. Like there was no fruit. You could not tell that I was a Christian. But if somebody asked, I 100% would claim it and say that I was a Christian because I believed in God and I believed that Jesus died on the cross for me. Like I've never, that's never not been something I've believed. But all that to say, because I wasn't walking with the Lord, I ended up meeting my now husband. And that's kind of what kept us together was that I wasn't a believer because he was not and he wanted absolutely nothing to do with it. During those years, though, I suffered some significant trauma. Mother's Day weekend of 2004, I was sexually assaulted in my house by a friend. Well, clearly he wasn't a friend, but um, by somebody that I knew very well. I lived with my best friend and her fiance at the time, and we worked together. And this particular man, uh, he had two jobs. He worked at the you know, place that we worked, which was a restaurant. And then he bartended at another place in town. He lived about 30 or 40 minutes from where he worked. And so when he would work really late, occasionally he would ask a group of us to stay at their house, depending because he'd get off at 2 a.m., wouldn't want to drive all the way home. It was something he did frequently. Never stayed at my house, but he it was something he did do frequently. There was a few of us that he would occasionally ask. And this particular night, he was working late and he had asked early on if he could crash on the couch um, and then he'd get up and leave the next morning. I said that was fine. I told him that we'd leave the front door unlocked and that he was more than welcome to come in. I'd leave blankets on the couch. 
if he could lock the door behind him and if he could just text me before he comes in. That way, you know, we would know that no one was breaking in or whatever. Just We would know that he was there and, you know, in case we woke up. And he did not do any of that. I woke up to him assaulting me. And, you know, it's crazy because it's not like necessarily what you see in the movies. It's not all violent necessarily. I just laid there and thought I had did something wrong. And he got up and he left and he didn't even, I mean, he didn't, he didn't need the couch. He wasn't staying the night. And so he left. The next morning I woke up and really felt like it had been a dream. I didn't tell my roommate or her fiance at the time. I didn't really know what to think or what to do. So I went to work like it was nothing. I I took a shower and I went to work and I completely lost it in the middle of my shift with my boss. He sent me home and I made the decision to go get the morning after pill because I was scared. I didn't know. I don't even know if he used protection. I don't know. And so I was scared. I didn't want any fallout of that. And so that's something that I've had to kind of reconcile and talk to the Lord about because, you know, there's a lot of opinions around that, but I was young and I didn't know what to do. And so that is what I chose to do. Didn't get STD tests, should have, didn't do any of that. I was just so naive and I wanted to pretend like it didn't happen. So I took the morning after pill and I slept for probably almost 20 hours straight. That's when my roommate knew something was wrong. I had, you know, I told her and was told that I should press charges and I tried. And the police said it's my word against his that there's nothing they could do. It had been too long and I mean, a couple of days. And um, that was that. And so I just had to move on. And about three months later, so July, two months later, so July of 2004, my roommate and I were out and unbeknownst to us, we were followed home by a perfect stranger. We had seen him and he had approached us. We didn't know that that's who it was until much, much later, but um, he had approached us and just tried to have a conversation with us, asked us probing questions like, where do we work? Where do we live? Like, just he was super weird. And so we ended up getting in the car and leaving and going home. Well, he ended up following us home. And somehow, I'm not sure how, but somehow over the course of the next few days, in addition to knowing where we lived, he got my cell phone number and was calling me. And so I would just get these random phone calls on my cell phone, no caller ID. I wouldn't know, like I wouldn't be able to see what it was or where it was coming from. Just sitting on the other line in silence, listening to me, you know, say hello, hello. I was being watched. I was being followed to work. I was being followed to like friends' houses. I was being followed everywhere. This went on for weeks and sometimes it would be worse than others. And then just when I thought maybe it it had gone away because it had been quiet. I didn't get calls. I wasn't being followed. It would start again. And so I filed a police report pretty early on because, because obviously <laughs> my safety and but I didn't know who it was. The police don't really, you know, if you, they don't have much to work with because I didn't have much information to give them. Every time I got a phone call, every time I felt like I was being followed, I would just call. And it just started to kind of build a case and a like a pattern. 
until one day I was working and a police officer came in and he said, I need you to come with me. And he puts down on the counter mugshots of several, several men. And there was the guy who had who had approached us a couple months earlier that night. And I recognized him. And I said, that guy, that's, I know, like, I know who that is. I mean, I don't know who that is, but I've seen him before. And I explained what the situation was. And he said, that's all I need. They ended up placing him under arrest. He was what they called a serial stalker. He was stalking several women in several different counties throughout the state of Nevada. He ultimately ended up getting convicted and went to maximum security prison. Myself and his victims were able to testify against him. And then he he did ultimately go, go to prison. During that whole time is when I met my husband, <laughs> my now husband. <laughs> it's funny, I tell him, like in hindsight, you maybe should have ran for the hills because <laughs> we met and we went on our first couple dates. And then I want to say it was, I mean, it was like a week or two into our relationship that I was like, by the way, I'm in the middle of court proceedings. I have to appear in court to testify in front of this guy and explain everything to him. And he was like, what? So yeah, that was how my, me and my husband's relationship started. I was kind of bringing a lot of baggage that I had not dealt with until really recently, actually. I carried that with me for a long time. I didn't deal with the trauma of my assaults. I didn't deal with the trauma of being stalked and having like all the things that come with that. Um, and then my husband was divorced and he had a five-year-old son and um, we both were just bringing some baggage clearly to this relationship. We moved super fast. We knew pretty early on. I want to say it was our third date. My husband told me he loved me. We just moved really fast. I don't recommend it, but <laughs> we started dating in September and I moved in in December. So just a couple months later. And gosh, by May, I was pregnant. And I, however, did not find out I was pregnant for two months. But with the math, like I knew that I was pregnant in May. And then I found out I was pregnant um, the beginning of July. And we got married about a week or so later. So start to finish, or not start to finish, was start of dating to marriage was 10 months in total. And, you know, that was not ideal. It was not how I wanted to get married. You know, when I was little, much like probably most girls, you have kind of a a dream or an idea of what your wedding would look like, what your love story, what, you know, all of that. And that was not at all what happened. What I didn't know is that that was just going to kind of be par for the course for our marriage is not really ideal, an ideal love story. If I'm doing the math right here, this is just about a year after everything happened. Like this would Mm -hmm. be 2005. Mm-hmm. We got married July of 2005. I was assaulted in May of 04 and um, stalked in July of 04 for a couple months. So, And then go through court proceedings, mm-hmm. meet your husband, get pregnant. That is, pregnant, that is a lot mm-hmm. within a, a 12-month period-ish. Right. Right. Yeah. Found out I was pregnant. I panicked when I found out I was pregnant. My husband still teases me. I was 23. And we were living together and found out I was pregnant. And the first thing I said, I looked at him and I said, what are we going to do? He was like, what do you mean? What are we going to do? We're going to have a baby. 
And he, you know, he was divorced and already had a son. And the reason they got married was because she got pregnant. And so I didn't want to do that. And he didn't want to do that again, but here we were. And it was one of those, like, I panicked and didn't know what to do. And my husband, who was not a believer, was like, what, like, what other option would we have? We're going to have a baby, like, regardless if we get married or whatever, like, we're going to have a baby. And I just was like, okay, I was so scared to tell my parents. And I didn't know what they were going to do or what they were going to think. And you know, my mom was really excited to be a, a Grammy. And my dad looked at my husband now, because this was before we were married. And he said, when are you marrying my daughter? And I don't ever recommend getting married because you're pregnant. I don't ever think that that's a good idea. I'm thankful for our story and how it has played out. But it was definitely a risk. And all I know is that God knew what he was doing. You know, he had a plan the whole time, obviously. But I want to say from the day we told my parents I was pregnant to our wedding was a week, I think. (laughs) My husband told me on like a Wednesday, hey, we're going to get married on Friday (laughs) because logistically with our insurance, I didn't have insurance. He had great insurance. There was just a lot of like logistical things coming down the pike as far as having a baby we needed to put into place. Getting married was the only way those things would work out. And so there we were, a shotgun wedding. So my parents were nervous because I was raised in the church. They knew that I was not walking my faith, but they also knew that I had that foundation and I just wasn't making it a priority. It really wasn't going to take much to bring me back to the Lord though. And I even knew that, but it seemed like maybe that was not going to happen anytime soon because when I met my husband, when it came time for like him to meet my family, I told him, so my parents are Christians, they go to church, like they read the Bible and stuff, you know? <laughs> and he said, that's fine. As long as they don't, you know, Bible thump me, try and convert me, like as long as that's how it is. And so, I mean, I told my parents, don't ask him about his faith. He's not a Christian. Like I just, you know, I was trying to like mediate this and my parents were freaking out. They were praying every day for his salvation and just for, you know, cause we got married. And so now I'm kind of in this and now we have a baby and we're at least on the way. And they just prayed, but they were so incredible about just walking alongside us and loving him just kind of a really, you know, quick story or whatever, because my husband ultimately did become a believer, but it's because of how my parents approached this. They never made him feel shameful or guilty for what he didn't believe. They never questioned it. My dad is a recovering addict or alcoholic. And so my dad has a lot of stories and he has a pretty checkered past and he wasn't always a Christian. And so he was really relatable to my husband because my husband has made a lot of bad choices as well, has a little bit of a checkered past. And so my dad was really the first person, one of the first people that my husband met that had a lot of junk in their past and a, a pretty messy story, was easy to talk to, but also loved Jesus. But like spoke normally, didn't quote the Bible or throw scripture at him all the time, like just was normal. And that was really appealing to my husband. And so over months, over time um, of just my husband asking my dad lots of questions and really just being curious, 
my dad ended up inviting my husband and I to church and was like, listen, we are going to this church. It has great music. My husband was a music major when he was in college. And I think you'd really like it, but no pressure. I was like, yeah, but you're going to have to convince my husband. And, you know, my husband was like, yeah, let's go. Let's try it. That was just obviously the Lord working. He only went, I want to say two or three weeks before he was like, man, like, this is what I want. This is what I want for my life. Like, this is what I feel like I've been missing. And so um, he gave his life to the Lord and he was baptized. And even though we've had a really hard story ever since then, neither one of us have ever looked back as far as like our faith. He has been pursuing Jesus ever since. And I rededicated my life. Uh, My dad actually baptized me and we just made the decision. Like at this point, our daughter was four months old. She had been born. We'd been married for almost a year, about a year. We decided like, this is how we're going to raise our family. His son who lived with us and our daughter and whatever future kids we would have. And so that's just kind of how the beginnings of our marriage started a little rocky, but then, you know, with Jesus. And I firmly believe that that's why we're here 18 years later is because of Jesus. Because otherwise, the rest of our story that I'll, I'm about to tell you would not, it, we wouldn't have made it. There's no way. What a great example for everyone listening, for, for those of you who do have somebody that you just, you love, but they don't have a relationship with God. They don't have a relationship with Jesus. I don't know about anybody else. I've never heard of anybody personally who said, oh, somebody Bible thumped me into the faith. Like that was how totally. I got, like that did it for yeah. me. <laughs> or, oh man, as soon as this person, you know, spat enough scriptures at me and judged me hard enough. Yeah. Then, then I wanted to (laughs) have a relationship with God. I don't know anybody that took that path, but just, oh my gosh, to be relatable, to be real, to be authentic, to be loving. And Mm -hmm. what a, what a difference that made. And I love too, that you pointed out that even though that was such the turning point in your story, you use the word pursuing, pursuing Mm -hmm. Jesus. It's not a okay, we do one thing, say one thing, get dunked one time and life is perfect from then on because that's not your story. And yet God never abandoned you in any of that. And and it's this this Mm -hmm. pursuit of this relationship. So hang tight listeners. It might sound like we're at the the happy ending right now. (laughs) (laughs) There's still a lot more to come, but every story we put on this podcast is a story of hope. And, mm-hmm. and you, sometimes you see a great chapter of hope followed by a really hard chapter and then yeah. there's more hope in that, but then there might be another major trial, but there's still hope in that and, and on and on it goes. So, all right. So at yeah. this point, yeah, you are, you're, you're a wife, you're a stepmom, you're a mom, you've yeah. rededicated your life, your husband's accepted Jesus and you're in your early mid twenties. Yeah. And like we think, 25. okay, everything's going in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Life's good. <laughs> yeah. I remember I was, I was probably 20, I was 24 or 25. Our daughter was about 18 months old. I was sitting on the floor playing with her one evening and my husband was sitting on the couch. The television was on and there was a fashion show on television that my husband was watching. It was a lingerie fashion show. I found myself like like wondering, why is this on? Why are we watching this? Like, this is weird. And also 
even though our daughter was only 18 months or two years old, she was super young. I was really uncomfortable with the lack of clothing (laughs) the women had on. Because even though my daughter couldn't form these thoughts, I still didn't want that being an impression that she had, like, like a visual that she had on a television screen of what beauty was or what made, like, that's what women should look like. Like, I just, I hated the, the imagery that was, I'm sitting here playing with my daughter and there's these scantily clad women walking across, you know, the television. And I just was like, this is not anything that I want my daughter. I don't want this to be an example of what a woman is, you know? And so I, I kind of just snapped, like was snippy. And I turned to my husband, I said, can we turn this off? And he was like, no, no, I don't want to. <laughs> and I thought he was kind of joking at first. And I was like, no, seriously, can we turn it off? And he said, no, but I don't want to, I'm enjoying it. I want to watch this. And so I explained to him why, which I didn't feel like I needed to, but I, I did. I explained to him why um, I wanted it off. And I was making me uncomfortable. And what if our daughter was, you know, 10 and this was on, you know, I just, cause she's two doesn't mean that I'm any more comfortable with it. You know, can we please turn it off? And he just, he said, no. And we ended up getting in a really big argument. And that was so long ago now. I can't, I can't remember all the details except for that was the first time I did start throwing scripture. I did start like browbeating him with the Bible because he was a believer at this point. He was a, a baby Christian, if you will. But it wasn't an issue. It wasn't a problem. And I was trying to communicate to him that it was and wanted to give him every reason under the sun in the Bible why he shouldn't be, you know, doing that and lust of the eyes and all of these things. And what that ended up communicating to him is that, you know, watching those things, enjoying those things was not okay, at least with me. And it meant that he had to now keep it from me because he was unwilling to stop watching it. And so I want to say the fight lasted a couple days until what really ultimately ended up coming of the conversations is that um, my husband ended up admitting that he had a pornography and a sex addiction that he had been dealing with for years, ever since he was, I mean, a teenager, like a young teenager, adolescent. I was really naive about what that meant um in my head i thought well you look at pornography so stop just stop and i really thought it was that simple and quite honestly um so did my husband he thought it was that simple and so he said that he would and we were done <laughs> we were done with it he says that he tried and that's when he realized that in his own power and his own strength just stopping wasn't it wasn't happening. And so, gosh, I mean, this took us on a 12 year roller coaster, really, of disclosures of all the things that he had ever lied to me about, all the things that he's done, looked at, you name it. And then, you know, land him in a recovery group or counseling or an accountability partner or, I mean, fill in the blank. Like, we did this for 12 years and we, you know, sparing all the details just because it was, it really was a roller coaster. Like I thought we'd be doing really well. I thought he'd be doing really well. And then I'd find something out or I'd catch, I'd catch him, you know, doing something or, and it was just like, something's got to give. 
I, I can't keep doing this. There was just layers to every disclosure. And it was like, it seems like everyone got worse than the one before and was just more hurtful. And, you know, so for 10 to 12 years that we dealt with, I dealt with the betrayal and mistrust and resentment and bitterness and anger. And he tried recovery groups for addiction, just kind of a broad addiction, Christian groups. He tried so many things and each time it was, I'm better. And then something would happen, you know, and I wouldn't know when that something would happen until so much time had passed and I would find it out. And then there we were, I felt like back at square one, we got to a point in during all of this time, you know, we moved out of state, we suffered, we along with everybody else in the world or in the United States, at least suffered the economic decline in 2008. (laughs) And my husband lost his job, and he didn't work more than he did. We lost our house. And um, there was just a lot of stuff going on, you know, we had two more babies, all of those things. We bought our first house and we lost our first house. Um, all of those things were really major distractions in the addiction roller coaster. So there'd be periods of time that I look back on our marriage and I'm like, well, that wasn't such a bad time. And then there was periods of times where it was really low, but really it never like his addiction. It's funny because when I tell the story from my side and then he tells the story, it's like, his addiction and struggle never stopped. He just continued deep in his addiction spiral for years. I mean, for this whole time. And there would be periods where I was blissfully unaware, thinking that naively that he, we were good. We did hit a point after we moved, we moved out of state where it was the worst it had ever been because his addiction took a turn to, instead of, I guess, instead of having an affair outside of our marriage, which is good. He used me as his wife to try and fulfill all of his needs or desires. And having the background I do with the trauma that I suffered in my early 20s before I met him did not go over well. And I just, I'm a firm believer that just because I'm your wife does not mean that I don't have a voice and I don't get a say. And just because we're married does not mean absolutely anything is permissible if I do not agree. And those were some like huge struggles. I talked about divorce. I threatened it. I told him that he could not treat me this way anymore. He could not do these things or say these things without any regard for our children being in the room. I mean, it just, it got so bad. Honestly, um, we ended up seeing a counselor more so because we were a blended family because his son was living with us. And at this point he was a teenager and we had a lot of struggles there too, but we started seeing this counselor and that was really one of the last disclosures. I remember I said, um, this can't happen anymore because he had been lying to me through the whole time we were in counseling. So about six or seven years ago, my husband was serving on the board. I was you know, working in full-time ministry as a women's director um, on staff at the church that we were going to. I mean, this had been a few years. Pornography had not come up, not one time. Like I, we were in a good place. We had kind of seen through counseling and worked through kind of the last disclosure. And I made it pretty clear, like 
this can't happen anymore. I was still very much under the impression that if he's making these choices to do this, like that's a him problem and all he has to do is stop. Like we didn't even really put this name to pornography addiction or sex addiction. I mean, we did, but even though that word addiction was in it, I was not treating it that way. I was treating it like these were choices that he was consciously making and that he was, when he would make a choice to act out or do these things, it, it was to hurt me or it was, you know, like that he fully had control, but that's not necessarily how addictions work. You know, yes, there are choices that happen. Yes, they are conscious choices, but the addiction drives your choices and drives your behaviors. And there's something that happens in your brain in an ad- with an addict and um, making it an addiction and so difficult to get out of that, um, you know, this addiction cycle. And so anyways, as I'm serving, there was a gentleman that came to the church and he approached the staff and he said, you know, I just really feel like the Lord's put this on my heart or have the story to share my marriage. I almost lost my marriage. I almost lost my wife. And he just started sharing with us about this organization that he found that's Christian based. And he started, you know, going through this, these support groups and showing up to these men's groups. And it's, it's a ministry called Pure Desire that is specifically for sexual brokenness, sexual addiction. It's not generalized addiction. It's very, very specific to this. And so I had never heard of it. Nobody knew me and my husband's story. We weren't super open about it because like I said, I just wanted it to just go away. But because of that and knowing the story, I thought, wow, this is pretty incredible. And so the staff was talking about bringing it to the church and having this organization have a ministry like a group within our church and our pastor wanted to know what the staff thought of it. And so we were distributed that there's like six DVDs just for the first few weeks. And then it turns into like support group, but the DVDs were distributed to the staff to watch, to kind of give their opinion about what they thought. And the DVD that was handed to me was all about addiction. This type of addiction was like the chemical makeup in your brain, the physiological things that happen when addictions are created, the the neural pathways that are like rutted in your brain when you create habits and then they become addictions, what your brain looks like in an MRI versus a a healthy brain, Um, like an addicted, a sex addicted brain to like a healthy brain. I mean, just there was so much science about explaining the addiction side of things. And then it kind of moved into like the sin nature of it too. I had no idea. And it was that moment that I was watching this DVD for the first time, even though I'm thinking my husband doesn't struggle with this anymore. I'm watching it. And it's the first time I ever had compassion for what my husband had been dealing with over the last more than decade since we were married. I mean, much longer than that before we were married, but I had no idea. And so the staff ultimately ended up deciding to bring the ministry to the church and have a, you know, have a group for men and I told my husband, I said, hey, you're on the board. I really think it would be a good idea. I know nobody really knows this about your story, but I think leading by example, because this is something, this is a really shameful addiction. It's something that nobody wants to talk about. I think that leading by example and attending this group might be a good idea. What do you think? And he, I mean, he was like, yeah, sure. 
because in his head, he knew he was still struggling. I think he thought maybe this will be different. And so he went and I want to say it was just a couple weeks in, he came home and he, he never, I mean, he had nothing but amazing things to say about every group that he went to every time, every week. And I remember one time I just said, what is it about this group? Like you've never been this way, not after counseling, not after other addiction groups, accountability stuff. Like, what is it? And he said, I've got to, I've got to talk to you. I got to tell you something. And he sat me down and he proceeded to tell me how he had been lying to me for years. And even though I thought we were done with this back counseling several years ago, here it was again. I was mad. I was hurt. I was a lot of things. I wasn't super kind either because I was just so angry. But also I was really into managing our image because I was I was the women's director at our local church and full-time ministry. And he was serving on the board, like married couples like this, don't go through this stuff. They can't, you know? And so he, he told me, but the reason he felt like this was different, he said, and the reason he seemed so excited about it every week was because he said it was the first time ever in his entire addiction struggle that he had hope because every single time, every single group he had been in or every single counseling session or everything he had ever done was usually like Christian based and usually said to just pray harder, like pray harder. If you're still struggling, it's because you don't want it bad enough. You haven't hit your bottom, like all of these things. And a lot of it was very still within his own power. And he also really thought that like, if he could just pray hard enough, it would just go away. Like he could just be, be done with it. And that's just not typically how God works. (laughs) He doesn't typically just completely remove. He can, he absolutely can, but he doesn't typically do that. And so this was the first time my husband had hope and hope that even if he lived with this addiction for the rest of his life, hope that he could manage it, hope that he could at least overcome the gripping urges and, you know, the, the, the really like day-to-day struggles that he was dealing with. And so he continued to go. And I continued to see change in him. I had never seen change and it wasn't just words. It was legitimate behavior change. He stopped doing the things that he had been doing before. He, he approached me and said, I need you to take these things off my phone. I need you to install the software on all of our devices. I don't want the password. I need, like, I mean, he was doing all of these things on his own. I had nothing to do with it. For the first time, I wasn't the one guilting him or yelling at him, telling him he needed to do these things or whatever. Like he just, he felt it and he saw the need for the first time. And what I started realizing, because it's a long program, what I started realizing month after month that he consistently went, he was committed to his homework, to his healing, to his recovery, to relationships with other men who struggle with the same thing and building trust and accountability. What I saw was changed behavior in him. I was still really resentful. I was still really bitter and angry. And I realized that I had a lot of un- dealt with trauma and anger from him, but also from the things that I brought into our relationship. Like you said earlier, like there was a lot that went on in a 12 month period of time and I did nothing to, I didn't deal with any of it. I was carrying so many things that I realized I needed my own healing journey. And that ultimately, regardless if my husband and I's marriage survived, 
I still needed to be okay. Like ultimately, if I ended up leaving my husband because I just couldn't trust him anymore, he ultimately still wanted to be free of this addiction. And at the end of the day, if I didn't stay married to my husband, whether I went on to get remarried or whatever, I can't stay bitter and angry. It's not for each other. It's for ourselves, you know, and that's not, it's not how God calls us to live either. So I went on my own kind of healing journey. I found my own support for actually portrayed spouses and went through my own journey that way and started really finding healing and really owning the things that I needed to own in my own journey and releasing things that were not mine to carry that were his. And that was so freeing. And there got to be a point where, you know, both my husband and I are starting to get healthy. Neither one of us wanted to be done with our marriage. I mean, I never wanted to leave my husband, although I know biblically speaking, I had every right to, I didn't want to, we had three kids, like we love each other. We wanted that to be enough, but it's not, it's a choice every day. And so we needed to be healthy to have a healthy marriage. And so as we're in this phase of rebuilding our marriage about six years ago is really when we started on that journey. We realized that we, we couldn't keep the story and the, these struggles and what we were going through to ourselves, something that they're super big on um, in pure desire and in the men's groups is, you know, you share your story because somebody else is struggling. And so you can't, you can't heal what you keep in the dark. So the more you talk about it, the more it's out in the open, the less it can, you know, thrive in that area because it, when you talk about it, it just, it shines a light on your sin. And so my husband got really good at sharing his story and telling people, especially like within this small community of, of people. But I really felt so strongly that we wanted God to use this story. There are so many couples, especially in the church, which is pretty heartbreaking, that this is their story. Women struggle with it too, but like, if not both one spouse, I mean, statistically speaking, men struggling with this in the church is staggering and nobody talks about it. I've never experienced it being talked about in, in the church. So we made a decision pretty early on that we were just, we were just going to share our story when it was applicable, just when we were given an opportunity, if the Lord, you know, led, so we'd be in small group or if it was one-on-one with couples or whatever, we would just kind of slowly start sharing our story. And as we did that, I started hearing more and more women approach me and tell me that they were dealing with the same thing, or sometimes there was infidelity or, you know, it, it, it just got so much bigger. Every time I shared my story, countless women would come and say, oh my gosh, thank you for sharing because this happened or that happened or, you know, whatever they all, they all had their own story. And I started sitting with that. I've always known everybody's, I mean, everybody's got a story. I've always firmly believed that there's more that meets the eye. Nobody ever reveals their whole person because there are parts of most people's story that are hard to talk about or that are messy or even come in contact with people that are like, but I don't have, I don't have anything like that in my story. But even those stories are so important. They're important to be able to shine the light on God's provision and that not every story has to be hard and messy and traumatic, but it also still in those, 
what I'll say, I guess, vanilla stories, they still shine the light on those people's humanity because they still have experienced anger. They've probably still experienced grief, you know, loneliness, like women that struggle with body image. Like, I mean, there are just so many things that I just started realizing, like, Lord, I know there's so much brokenness in this world, but man, like when it's, when you're face to face with it, because the moment you start being vulnerable, it gives permission for other people to be, you know, likewise, that you just start really realizing how hurting people are and how broken this world is. And I, I struggled with that, like, Lord, what am I supposed to do with this? Because now I have this platform and I know these women's stories. And so I went through this period of time where I had to just like reconcile. And so I remember praying like, Lord, what do I do with this? I'm really, I have this like holy discontentment for the burden that so many women feel like they have to hold it all together and they can't possibly be honest about their brokenness, but yet women are hurting. And I sat in a small group, a couple's small group, and like three of the women shared with me intimate details, terrible, hard things. I'd been in small groups with these couples for three years and none of us knew any of it until we started sharing our story. That's when they felt like they could open up. And I was like, how did we sit in a living room for three years with these people and not know any of it? And so the Lord just gave me this, I mean, idea, I guess, I don't know. And he said, use your platform to share your story, but use your platform to let others share their story too, because that's what is needed. And not just share your story of like the messy, like I could sit here and share all of the like terrible things and then just leave it at that and be like, well, and that's my life, you know, but that's not where it ends. Kind of like Easter, the story doesn't end on Friday, (laughs) you know, the the story continues and there's victory. So where has God shown up? Because even in our, even in the worst brokenness, like God's still there, he's sitting in it with us. And so he just, the Lord gave me this idea to use my platform as the women's director to hold an event, to give women the stage, to share their stories. And that's where Stories Unveiled was conceived, 2018. And we held our first conference, September of 2018. And it was five of my closest friends whose stories I knew. And I just it's like, will you just share your story of what God's done in your life? And they were like, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, I'll help you like write your story out, but just share it, share what God's done, like all the messy, all the things. And that event, so to speak, kind of evolved. I mean, we have live worship, we have teaching, so it's not just stories. We do have um, always a teaching message about just the importance of our stories, the importance of sharing them. and. We have some other fun, like creative elements and stuff. But man, the heart of the entire thing is the multiple stories that are shared each event. It's just been amazing, like what God's done with it. And believers that come to be encouraged and hear stories, and then it gives them permission to then be able to share things that some have never shared. And non believers who probably won't show up on a Sunday for a worship service or a message, but will show up to this because they'll hear somebody's very relatable story, somebody's very messy, broken parts of their story. 
but we don't ever end it there. There's always the message of hope, but like, but this is where God showed up. This is what God is doing. And, you know, stories aren't wrapped in pretty bows. Most of them aren't anyways. They, there is not a very clear beginning, middle and end. There's not always a happily ever after. Like, like people are broken. This world is fallen. And that's just, our lives are a reflection of that. But I believe it's so important for everybody to share all the parts of that and to still be able to point to Jesus and say, but that's where I was and this is where I am. And I still have victory in that and I can rest in that. And that's the bow, like that's the pretty bow. So that's just kind of, I guess it's in a nutshell, what Stories Unveiled is and kind of how we got there. Here we are, 2023 and planning our sixth conference, I think. That's so amazing. I know when we talked and shared about the Stories Unveiled ministry and the Story Night ministry, listening to so much of the similarities, the heart of each ministry is almost identical. Just the mm-hmm. the value of stories and the the purpose of sharing them and, and all of that. And the format's a little different and it's so incredible. I wish we lived around the corner from each other. <laughs> right. It would be so fun to attend each other's events like right. all the time. But so ladies, as always, we'll have links to these in the episode notes. So the link for Pure Desire will be there. The link for Stories Unveiled will be there. And uh, hopefully some, some good news, exciting news here is that Ashley is going to be uh, sharing, you know, some of the recordings from from some of these stories that have been part of the Stories Unveiled conferences that we'll get to publish here on this podcast. And and there's there's more, <laughs> but wait, there's more because <laughs> just recently you actually started hosting a like radio show slash podcast type of thing as well for ladies yeah. to share their stories. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was kind of a funny thing. So with the conference, we partner with um, organizations and businesses, and we partner with all sorts of people each year. We partner with churches. That's actually, that's a huge part of what we do with Stories Unveiled, because unchurched people come through the door and they experience this. There's always an opportunity for people to give their life to the Lord at these events. We have prayer team um, every year. and so. We want to be able to have somewhere to funnel women if they've made a decision to follow Jesus, you know, because Stories Unveiled is not a church. We want to be able to offer them a place to land, a place to get involved, a place to get connected. And so we partner with a lot of local churches, uh, Christian churches, to be able to do that. If somebody makes a decision to say, like, we've got some really incredible women's organization or women's ministries at churches. And um, one of those places that we partnered with in the past and kind of remained in and out of communication with is a radio station. It is local to where I live in the sense that its like largest following is here where I live, which is Boise, Idaho. But it, you can listen to it from anywhere online. And it's not just in our valley. It is in parts of Oregon. It is in other places. <laughs> I wish I knew off the top of my head of <laughs> uh, some of the other places, but the name of the radio station is KTSY and you can go to KTSY.org to listen to the radio live like anybody else would. I mean, it's kind of just like Sirius Satellite Radio or people listen to podcasts, you know, whatever. You can listen to it live from the website. 
But all that to say, I've been in partnership with them kind of on and off for mostly like exposure to have them advertise the event, like not really for anything more than that. And last year, chatting with them again about the upcoming conference and logistics and and that, and they approached me and said, have you ever thought about doing a podcast? And I said, honestly, no. (laughs) I've been asked several times because Stories Unveiled is only once a year, although we do have five or six speakers every year. The event itself is only once a year. And so I've been asked several times, why don't you do a podcast? It'll allow more stories and more consistent you know, to be able to hear stories more consistently in between the events. And I just don't have the time. I don't have the margin. I I don't have the equipment. I don't even know. I don't even know what it takes to be on a podcast. podcast. I've been on several podcasts and I just sit in front of my computer and I talk. <laughs> That's what I do. I've been on the radio. I just show up and I talk like I don't I don't have any equipment. And so I was like, no, honestly, I've, I've never considered doing the podcast. And they said, well, even though we're a radio station, like we know so many people listen to podcasts. And so we are launching a like pilot podcast. We want to see how it goes. We want to basically fund and sponsor, you know, a a new podcast. We want to be able to see like what happens and their whole thing with the, with uh, the radio station is messages of hope through stories of Jesus. Like that's, that's like their tagline. That's like everything that they do is like, messages of hope through you know what Jesus is doing it's literally what stories unveiled is and so when they really like dove deep into what stories unveiled was doing they were like man this seems pretty seamless and so they just said would you do a stories unveiled podcast we'll take care of everything (laughs) and so I said yes something I've something I've done really through this whole thing with stories unveiled is I don't say no very often because I feel like if God's going to give an opportunity, then I'm just going to walk through the door and prayed about it early on that like, Lord, if you have something for this, like I literally hold the ministry with open hands and I have since the moment it started, because this is not mine. And, you know, I just want to further the kingdom. This has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with who he is. And so being able to just say, yeah, okay, sure. I'll do this podcast. They said, all you need to do is bring the stories, like, and then, you know, show up and do it, (laughs) facilitate it, but they do everything else. And it's just been amazing. So yeah, we are, gosh, we are more than halfway through our first season. All of the episodes are recorded, but we're about halfway through publishing them, dropping them. And our, we have, we release every other Wednesday. And so through May 24th. And then we just signed a contract for season two. Um, we'll drop July 5th. We'll start. So we'll take about, we'll take June off and then season two will kick off and it'll just be more amazing stories. And you know, and I know we could be doing this for decades and decades and decades and decades. There are no shortage of stories. Right. For every person that exists on this planet, there's a story. Mm-hmm. It is such an honor to be trusted with somebody's story, for them to be willing to share it with you, and then to share it out uh, on these kinds of platforms. It's it's so special and it's so meaningful. It helps us understand each other. I, I think mm-hmm. there's so many so many reasons why we tell our stories. We tell our right. stories to 
let other women know that they're not alone and mm-hmm. whatever they're going through. And we tell our stories so that we can be authentic and we can stop judging each other incorrectly mm-hmm. and or comparing ourselves to each other also incorrectly. Yeah. <laughs> and just find, you find your tribe, the, mm-hmm. finding these other women who get it. They've been through whatever your story is, a divorce, cancer, abuse, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. There are all, all these other women that have lived through it and they know and they get it in every single story, no matter how dark or traumatic it is, there's hope. And that's the whole point of this. And yeah, you and I could spend every day together for (laughs) for talking about stories and the importance of stories and story ministries. And I just, I love it. I'm so grateful that we got to connect and I'm so thankful that you were willing to be our 100th episode. (laughs) Thank you. I'm I'm honored to be your 100th episode. I'm consistently humbled that I get to do this, that God has trusted me with the people. I won't even say women's because I have done men, you know, men have been on the podcast and just through marriage stories and everything, but just with people's stories that I'm just always so humbled about the stories that people share and that they, you know, trust me with them. Yeah, every story I hear, it it just moves me. and. Like you said, there's no shortage of stories, even for those who feel like they don't have a story. They do. Those ones are super important too. Yes. Yes. And amen. Absolutely. (laughs) I could not possibly agree with you more. As we close, I was hoping you would pray for our listeners Mm -hmm. and pray for their stories. Yeah, absolutely. Dear God, I'm so humbled by just um, the stories that you leave for us. You're just writing an incredible story for every single human. As long as we allow you to come into our stories and take the reins and guide us, Lord, what an amazing, beautiful story of victory and redemption and hope every single time, regardless of our circumstance, regardless of our moments. Lord, I just pray for every single listener, for every person that listens to this episode, other episodes, that I just want to lift them up to you. You know, in this moment where they're at in their story, what they're going through, the hard, the messy, the great, the amazing, all of the things, you know, exactly where their head and their hearts are. And so Lord, I just want to lift them up to you, lift up their stories, Lord. And God, if there's somebody who has a story that they feel so deeply they want to share because it just it reflects who you are and glorifies you, God, I pray that they have the courage to reach out to someone and share that story and pass on that message of hope of who you are. And God, if it's somebody who doesn't feel like their story is worthy, that they're not worthy, that it's maybe not interesting enough, or maybe it's too hard. It's too messy. It's too shameful. Lord, I just pray that you would lift that from them and somehow show them that that's just not the truth. That's from the enemy, Lord, and that our stories are amazing. They change lives and they matter. God, we just love you so much. We just thank you for who you are in our lives, for being a constant always, and being able to bring us hope and give us victory over over death, Lord, ultimately, we are just so humbled. And I'm so thankful for what you give us. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Ashley.
Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for everything that you're doing with Stories Unveiled. Ladies, if you're listening, whatever year you're listening to this, <laughs> whether <laughs> whether it's right after we publish or you're, you're listening to this episode, you know, many years down the line, definitely check out Stories Unveiled because it's September, correct? Every September you have your conference? That's correct. And so if you're anywhere within driving distance to the Boise, Idaho area, mark your calendars. You want to be there. Again, we'll put the website and some links in the episode notes for you. So yeah, and we live stream too. So if you can't, you can't come in person, then you can always tune in. Absolutely. And maybe we get some watch parties going, right? So whatever state, (laughs) wherever you're listening from, see if you can get a little watch party going. That would be pretty amazing. And we just continue to further this ministry of, of sharing our stories. And so ladies, wherever you're at in your story, please know you are not alone and that no matter what, and no matter how dark there is hope. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether this is your first time or you have listened to all 100 episodes now. We are so thankful that you were here to hear this story and we hope you are blessed and encouraged and that you come back next time for our next story. Good night, y'all. The Story Night Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women.